Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. In this episode, we discuss the book Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Stray, and What It Means for Modern Relationships by Christopher Ryan and Kelsida Jethra. Sex at Dawn challenges conventional wisdom about sex in a big way. By examining the prehistoric origins of human sexual behavior, the authors are able to expose the fallacies and weaknesses of standard theories proposed by most experts. This is a provocative, entertaining, and pioneering book, and we all learn so much from it. This book club meeting was originally held on Sunday, February 11, 2024. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the book club. This is our February edition, and we could not be more excited about our book day and our presenter. Before we get to the actual meeting, we're going to go through a couple of announcements like we always do. But first, we're going to read our mission statement, and we have our good friend book club member, um, David, who's going to read that. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, that just sounds so good when you read it, David. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. So um, I also forgot to add at the top of the show that um, let's all try to keep our mics muted so there's not any ambient noise while we're listening. And of course, unmute when you want to make a comment. Um, the Good Book Club went to um, a book signing of a new book. I have it right here, American Zion by Benjamin Park. And we are going to be interviewing him on Mormonish. And I think I'll throw this out to the book club as extra reading because this is really good. It's just kind of history of Mormonism and Benjamin Park, he wrote Kingdom of Nauvoo. So I'll know he does an amazing job. So pick yourself up a copy. This is an awesome read for extra bonus material for the book club. Let's see, what else do we have coming up? Um, okay. Finally, our episode with Moshe Quinn, who is the son of D. Michael Quinn, where we discuss the chosen path on the Mormon Stories Book Club, is going to air on Valentine's Day for some reason <laughs> at 10 a.m. We taped it a while ago. It was supposed to be a live episode, but some, some things happened at the Mormon Stories studio that it's going to be coming out on February 14th at 10 a.m. So just pop on Mormon Stories and you'll be able to see our interview. There's a picture there. Barbara Brown, who is the um, CEO of Signature Book, and she also edited and annotated this book. This is a really good book. I keep telling you guys this, but it is really amazing like a fly on the wall of the inner workings of the church for those decades, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, to the 2000s. A lot of really interesting information in here um, through the eyes of Michael. So can't recommend this one enough either. Let's see what else do we have. Um, oh, yes. The next book coming up in the Mormon Stories Book Club, which I helped John DeLynn, is Uncultured. This is the story of someone who survived the Children of God cult in Brazil. So I'm not sure of the date yet, but if you want to grab a copy and start reading, we're going to have a live interview with her. I'm guessing the end of February, maybe beginning of March. So I've, I've just started this, and it's really fascinating. There's also a couple documentaries online. Trying to think, I think maybe on Netflix um, about the Children of God cult. Really, really fascinating stuff. So that's coming up. 
Let's see what else we have. Um, oh, I do not have this book yet because it doesn't come out till the 18th of February, but it is called The Devil Sat on My Bed. Landon and I got to interview the wonderful author, um, Dr. Stiles, Erin, as we call her, um, about this book where she just talks about how it's so baked into Mormonism. This, you know, I saw my dead ancestor, spirit visited me. Really interesting book. And our discussion was really interesting with her. And we'll be doing that on Mormonish Podcast probably in the next two weeks. So this is coming out on the 8th if anybody is interested in getting a copy of that. And then, of course, Letting Go. And I highly recommend this. And we are going to have Lisa on. Oh, my goodness. We've been trying to do this Christmas time. <laughs> so we're going to have her on to talk about the book, too, on Mormonish Podcast. So it's a good book. Grab a copy. Lisa's fantastic. And I can't recommend this one enough either. Um, another thing that we want to bring everyone's attention to is Thrive. It is in St. George, March 1, 1st through 3rd. This is where you can see the speakers there. We're going to have John and Lee Bell, Natasha. Um, is Natasha there? No, Lindsay Hansen Park, um, Anthony Miller, lots of people. I know lots of people are going down for this. You can look at Thrive Beyond Religion Org to try to get more information, but this is happening in, in less than a month in St. George area for those of you that are around. And I think Bruce is coming down for this, which is really fun. So that's awesome. Um, our next book coming up in March, and we're going to have Lynn, who our presenter, give us more of a detailed preview at the end of today's book club, but it's Devil's Gate. And this is the story of the Willie Martin Handcart Company, the true story. So this is a really great book. I haven't started it yet, but a lot of people told them this is the next book, said I've already read it, or this is amazing. So we are really looking forward to this. And putting together a field trip where we go to Wyoming. Not this time of year. That's not good, but maybe later in the in the spring or summer. So, all right. I think that brings us to the beginning of our book club episode today, where we will be discussing Sex at Dawn, and we have the amazing Shauna as our presenter. So, get away, Shauna. <laughs> okay. Um... Let's see, I want to share my screen. And first, let's get this out of the way. I apologize for the AI. I just wanted to follow uh, Rebecca's, <laughs> Rebecca's, um, I'll share, share. Uh, see, now I'm already losing it. Um, example and go with some AI stuff. Uh, let me get this out of the way. I will do my best. Anyway, I will not. I'm nervous. Sorry. <laughs> okay, everybody can hear me? Yep, you're good. Okay, we're good. Okay, so Sex at Dawn argues against the prevailing belief that humans are inherit inherently monogamous creatures. The book proposes that monogamy is a relatively recent development and not necessarily aligned with our biological nature. It suggests that the advent of agriculture and the institution of private property plays a pivotal role in shaping our modern conception of monogamy. The authors argue that the shift from a nomadic egalitarian existence to a settled hierarchical society led to the emergence of possessiveness, jealousy, and the need to control sexual behavior. The book has generated controversy and sparks discussion among both scholars and the general public. Critics argue that the author's argument is overly simplistic or flawed and claim that, they're cherry -picked, that they cherry-pick evidence to support their perspective. One of my biggest criticisms is that the subtitle 
what it means for modern relationship is not really addressed in the book. At least that was my takeaway. Um, I did not come away with a clear understanding of what to think about the data presented. Where are the suggestions for what to do with the information? Where do we go from here? So what were your initial thoughts, if you want to share any or criticisms of the book? Does anybody have any? Oh, Bruce. Well, yeah, again, this kind of goes with everything about the book club. We were raised in a culture that had very defined um, sexual rules, though those have changed dramatically over the last hundred and some years uh, from polygamy and, um, and stuff. But uh, in deconstructing our religious background, the book club serves as one of my resources is to figure out how the world works. You know, we read uh, who we are and how we got here. Uh, David Reich from the Harvard uh, Genetics Lab. We read um, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And just trying to figure out how does the world work? Well, this book kind of goes like, okay, so the... Um, you know, narrative that we grew up with about, you know, you go on your mission to you get married as soon as you can, you have as many kids as you can, you stay married and stuff may not be the most natural thing. And the the Mormon church's um, obsession with masturbation and things sexual. Um, yeah, so it, it just kind of adds a little bit to my view that the world isn't the way that I was taught how it works. And this gives me a little bit more insight into how the world may work. So that, that's just my comment. Thanks. Yvonne? Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. So yeah, just echoing Bruce, um, the a quote from the book that said, we all have a psychological tendency to view our own experience as standard. We all know that. Um, one of the things I shared a lot of these, uh, my insights with my husband, Charlie, who didn't read the book, but, um, and I thought it had a lot of um, data, right? I mean, it had a lot of experiences and stuff, but, but he said, well, he suggested I look for some counter stuff and there was somebody did write a refutation of the book called Sex at Dusk. I don't know if any of you came across that. But, yeah. but my takeaway was was really positive from the whole book in that um, you know, once you kind of start deconstructing that your the way you have looked at things, the way you you looked at things that sapiens, Homo sapiens have been progressing, you know, and from base apes or whatever if you believe in evolution to higher and higher and more more moral people and just that paradigm breaks down um yeah i think it, it it's kind of freeing in a way um and i shauna your criticism that he does address like what next that's valid but i wanted to read this paragraph because it, to me it summarized um what what he was saying in the book and um it's on page 109 of the book and it's 
Could it be that the atomic isolation of the husband-wife nucleus with an orbiting child or two, I just love his metaphor in there, um, is in fact a culturally imposed aberration of our spirit of our species as ill-suited to our evolved tendencies as corsets, chastity belts, and suits of armor. Dare we ask whether mothers, fathers, and children are all being shoehorned into a family structure that suits none of us? And he does spend a lot of time in the first chapter of going through all the ways that serial monogamy, as he calls it, has failed us, you know, with all the divorce rate and, and you know, even the parental, the, the resentment of children. So, and I'm not willing to, to say that monogamy is, is not the way to go. But maybe it is the way for some people, right? I mean, I love to listen to Natasha Helfer Parker when she talks about sexuality because she makes it so normal. You know, if you're zero to ten on the scale, if you're a one or a two, that's fine. If you're if you're a ten and hypersexual, that's okay. But certainly, we need to educate our, educate ourselves, and especially I'm looking at my grandchildren now because my children have all grown and everything, but. We need to educate ourselves, right? And that's what this book tries to do. Thank you. Landon? Yeah, it was, uh, the thing I really liked about the book was uh, it showed me how sexuality tends to track the culture uh, so much of the time. Uh, you know, it was, uh, they pointed out, I, I really thought it was cool when they talked about the hunter-gatherers and how when you have a hunter-gatherer village, you share everything. You share your food, you share protection, you share the hunt, you share the, uh, you know, all the all the parties or whatever you want to call them, the rituals, everything is shared. So it only made sense that you would share uh, those other things. And I know that that was a thing when Lewis and Clark got up to the, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the name of the tribe, but up in North Dakota, when they got up uh, there uh, heading west, uh, that they stayed the winter with the tribe, and that's exactly what happened. They just shared all, all the all the natives came out and said, "Oh, take our wives and go," you know, because they believed that the white uh, mixing the white people would help strengthen their the, the children. So it was kind of the same concept that I saw in this book. Uh, so I thought that was quite fascinating to see uh, how a hunter gatherer society that shares everything that you would share that. And then it also made sense from child rearing that, you know, when you're, when you're in a culture where people die and can die very young, uh, it's going to be very often that the father's going to die uh, of a disease or of a, an injury. And the kid is taken care of because he has multiple fathers or vice versa for mothers. They have multiple mothers that raise them in the village. So the village raises the child as opposed to a person. And that made sense to me um, in, in that type. And then when you get to the agricultural society, you see how monogamy and property rights uh, influenced it. And it's the same way with the Mormon church. You know, you, you saw the polygamy uh, comes in and people, why did people accept it? Well, because it was the culture. It was culturally acceptable. So it seems like uh, you know, it's really that that uh, sexuality is really just a reflection of what's acceptable from society. I don't uh, I kind of saw that, you know, it doesn't have to be one way. It's whatever the culture uh, decides can can work for for that culture and shouldn't be looked at bad or good. It's just how they do it. Yeah, thanks. 
uh, Landon, we actually are going to go into the um, hunter-gatherer versus agricultural revolution um, later. So thank you for, for your thoughts on that. Uh, David and Bruce, and then we'll move on. Pretty much echoing what um, Landon had said. Everything was to be shared in common. But the one thing that did strike me was the when fathers didn't know that they were the father, they were more happy to be doing the rearing. So having women who were polyamorous, having multiple seed, as it writes, you know, that they didn't know who actually got them pregnant. In that way, all of the uh, the men became, oh, I will support it. But to me, it just, it doesn't seem to, you know, sit comfortably that the the fall of civilization and the lead to monogamy partly was because of, of course, the agricultural um, revolution, but then that men started to realize that they were the fathers. And it was like, oh, no, we can't do that. It just makes me wonder, you know, as a historian, what was the motive or what is the perspective that they're, they're putting out? Because today that we see uh, where there's certainly single families, it's those children of single families, um, name, namely, you know, where the fathers have gone, that seem to be the um, the most difficult, difficult or have the most difficulties in society. Um, so it just it just struck me about this. Well, it was almost a sweeping statement where they didn't know they were the father. They were certainly contributing to fathering where they did know they would leave. Odd, but nevertheless. Yeah, thank you, David. I actually I'm not a historian, but I do love history. And so I'm I kind of focused on um, historical aspects of, in this discussion. Just Bruce. Yeah. And then just at the very beginning of a person's maturing the church has such negative um teachings where you know i don't even know if kids now nowadays know what necking and petting was but i think that was very defined um before and and you find stuff at church still referring to those terms and kids are going like what but we know that I guess in general, we know the the human brain doesn't completely develop in, until around 25, but we are, I think, naturally pushing kids into getting married very young, and not and also not knowing each other very well. So those are just some of my comments, you know, as it related to to my experience. So let's let's go on with the uh, the discussion. Okay. Let's see if that worked. No, nope, that did not work. There we go. Okay, so we're going to talk about the uh, Darwin standard narrative. This is, I'm not sure who's getting married here, which one's Darwin, but this is what I, a, AI gave me, uh, versus fierce egalitarianism. And I watched a, a TEDx or a TED Talk, I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but uh, that Christopher Ryan gave discussing this book. And so some of my stuff is going to come from that. Um, oh, wait, no, back up, back up, back up. Uh, so the authors argue against the prevailing belief that humans are inherently monogamous creatures. In his TED Talk from 2012, Christopher Ryan calls this belief Darwin's standard narrative. So Darwin's standard narrative um, men is that men have least women's reproductive potential. This is what he says in his TED talk. Uh, 
By providing them with certain goods and services, meat, shelter, status, protection, in return, women often offer fidelity. This sets men and women up in an oppositional relationship. The war between the sexes is built right into our DNA, according to this position. But in, so instead, Sex at Dawn argues that humans practice fierce egalitarianism, which is, move on, move on, there we go. Fierce egalitarianism, uh, quote, they demand things be shared, all the things supposedly being traded to women for their sexual fidelity, it turns out, are shared widely among these societies. This is simply the best way to mitigate risk in a foraging context. And there's no real argument about this among anthropologists. All Casilda and I have done is extend this sharing behavior to sexuality. So we've argued that human sexuality has eventually evolved until agriculture as a way of establishing and maintaining the complex, flexible social systems that our ancestors were very good at. And that's why our species has survived so well. So actually, here's one of my um, my criticisms. The, the quote, all Casilda and I have done is extend the sharing behavior to sexuality. They seem to do that on occasion. They extend, here's, here's the, the data, here's the, 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 you know, what, what the scientists and the, the, the researchers have come up with, and we're going to just apply it over here without any justification for why they can apply it. They do that a few times. Um, and maybe it's valid, maybe not. Uh, but that's just, that that quote really struck me. So of course, this discussion wouldn't be complete if we didn't throw in some Mormon theology. The family proclamation says, the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. So we must be, Adam and Eve were first, and they were married. Uh, so questions. What stood out, let me see. What stood out to you regarding the standard narrative that monogamy and marriage are ancient practices? What stood out regarding fierce egalitarianism? Do you agree with the author's extending sharing behavior to sexuality? Where I you know, had a little issue with that. Do you agree promiscuity helps strengthen social ties, which we talked about? Do you think it could do so in today's society? Is a belief in Adam and Eve being the first married couple beneficial to society? Why or why not? Landon. Yeah, the first the first thing I noticed is, uh, you know, the idea of Adam and Eve, uh, you know, we know through DNA and whatnot that there was no Adam and Eve, but the, the story starts uh, is basically an agrarian society. You know, the two sons, one of them's a kind of a hunter and the other one's a, a uh, a farmer. So you, you get agrarianism right away, which leads to uh, a man and a woman in a monogamous relationship. So uh, I think that Adam and Eve are really based on that agrarian society and not on the, the, the ancient, you know, much later, much earlier uh, uh, marriages. But uh, Rebecca and I just yesterday, and it's it's going to air on Tuesday for, for Mormonish, we did a uh, 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 an episode on uh, same-sex marriage and could it could it work and how could it work theo uh, theologically and as we went through it one of the things we we found is there is no theology in the bible for uh marriage in heaven and afterwards and all of these things that we see in the mormon uh 
philosophy. It's just not there. It it might say man and a woman, but we also have Abraham who married multiple wives in the in the scriptures. Uh, but almost everything we know, proclamation of family, comes from late prophets, modern day prophets, and it's not in the scriptures at all. And we went through and looked at how marriage and how ceilings have changed over time. And it's a big hot mess. Uh, you could be sealed to if someone dies and someone else gets you marry someone else and they'd been married. Uh, once you die, you can be sealed to them. And so you start having these ceilings where you have lots of men and lots of women who are sealed to multiple people. And it just uh, the, the whole thing becomes kind of ridiculous um, in the end. What happens is you have this big ceiling that looks exactly like what he just discussed. You have all these people who are all sealed together to in this ceiling chain to raise the spirit children of God. Um, so it really goes back when you look at the ceiling chains, it goes back to exactly what he was describing here with multiple people raising uh, families. The, the nuclear family hardly ever exists in society. It's really an invention since 1950s uh, and was a reaction to the Cold War uh, because you had godless communism. And so you had to have a godless, we started becoming more spiritual and we put the family and the nuclear family became the center of everything. And that's now what the church has fallen to. But when you look back, you know, they weren't a nuclear, the nuclear family was not the primary thing in the 1800s, uh, far from it. And uh, when we look back through all of history, we see that the nuclear family was not the norm for almost all of history. So that, that idea is just kind of debunked through uh, history when you look at it. It's not to say monogamy didn't exist and that it's not a, an acceptable way. It just wasn't the norm for even today. It's not the norm when you talk about divorces and, uh, you know, widows and different things to have just one man and one woman married for all the time and, and that not be break. That's, that's really not even the normal today. That, that is true. And I actually have a friend who is black and she talks about that the married at home, stay at home mom um, model has never been the, the, the norm in the black community. And I also wanted to mention, you brought up um, ceilings, Landon. I have heard, and I don't know if this is, you know, the standard narrative, not standard narrative, but if that, um, that possibly that was the, the getting everybody sealed to everybody was kind of Joseph Smith's initial thought was that he wanted to have these ties, which is, you know, he was sealing to men as brothers and, and, you know, that's a, yeah, there, there was three types. There was three types of ceilings, kingdom, which was what Joseph Smith did. It was a priesthood ceiling. He was sealing everybody, uh, the law of adoption and okay. the law of plural marriage. And everyone got sealed together. It was a priesthood network is what he was sealing. Uh, okay. Then it went to lineage where you did just your family, but then they ran out of names and said, well, uh, we've sealed everybody who's in our lineage. And so then they went to what's family where you now do husband and wife and you do ex name extraction to everybody. So those are kind of the three levels of ceilings that they've done over time. So you're right. Okay. They used to just sell everyone in priesthood networks, not in so much in marriages. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. Bruce. Yeah. One, my, my observation at this point is, you know, we've kind of at some point defined marriage the Adam and Eve story is one thing, but then that morphed into Middle Eastern polygamy and 
Mormon polygamy and then Mormon monogamy. But the thing that I notice is that if you have power and wealth, your ability to satisfy your sexual needs is much more available to you. I I like to watch some of the um, YouTube channels. So one's called uh, Useful Charts that goes through and defines, you know, all the royal lineages and stuff. And they're always having to have legitimate and illegitimate children. Joseph Smith got power and money and he started, you know, fulfilling his sexual urges with younger women and many other women. You take a look at um, politicians, um, serial monogamy often goes on the last president, you know, had three different wives. Plus he's also obviously had sex with many people because he's being sued for it. You have um, the British Royal family, you know, where there's always somebody else, even though the marriage seems to be pretty good or, or functioning, but there's always this stuff on the side. So when you have power and money, you can then, you know, satisfy your needs a, a little more, not necessarily openly, but with less consequences than, you know, cheating on your wife, you know, when you're in Draper, Utah, you know, or, or then maybe you decide to both cheat on, you know, or join the swingers and stuff. But it, it's interesting when, when people have power, you see more of this open sexual relationships um, going on. So just my observation. Thanks. See, I am unmuted. Okay. Um, okay, so next we are going to go on the agricultural revolution. Uh, sexual promiscuity, the, the, the thought is that sexual promiscuity helped our ancestors survive by sharing fatherhood amongst the group and sharing social ties. Uh, from the, that, and I'm quoting a lot or paraphrasing a lot from a, an analysis done on this book from a website called Blinkist. Because our ancestors engaged in lots of casual sex and had a limited understanding of conception, they had no way of knowing who the father of any given child was. This is what Landon was talking about. Thus, every male was inclined to care and provide for every child a responsibility that was distributed among the group. As a result, food and other goods were shared, also improving the chances of survival for everyone. Casual sex strengthens bonds, strengthens bonds within the group because it tends to keep the participants happy, relaxed, and amiable. The hormone oxytocin is largely responsible for this phenomenon, sometimes called nature's ecstasy. It is released during sex and produces feelings of closeness and peace. What do you think about that idea? Any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, uh, Landon won. <laughs> Beat you, Bruce. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of a neat idea that uh, by doing that, they talked about the bonobos and how much peaceful it was because all the men weren't fighting over the over the uh, women. It was kind of a shared thing. And so they were kind of, I just saw a bunch of laid back monkeys that were, you know, smoking cigarettes. You know, <laughs> it's the picture I got in my mind. But I thought that's an interesting concept anyway, that if you don't have to 
fight over the resources and you you're sharing everything that there's not a reason to be you know fighting over it as much so i i thought it was an interesting outlook uh i uh, I guess, you know, some of these things I know are controversial in the book, whether there's societies where they weren't fighting because of this, I don't know. But I, I, I did think it was a, a neat idea or at least a neat concept to think about. Yeah. Thank you. Bruce? Yeah. I, the agricultural revolution is something I've come across in a number of books that that I've read. Um I, I have a hard time with my health and, and everything. And so I read lots of books on that. And stuff that keeps coming up is that the hunter-gatherers had very good, uh, diverse diets. And they tended to be uh, taller and more healthy. When agriculture came along, we started uh, specializing in just certain grains and certain animals. And that kind of limited the variety of food, therefore our health. And it also gave rise to, you know, property. And if you made, had more food, you could then support slaves. And it moved from that egalitarian world where it's also pointed out that sex was more egalitarian, that the agricultural revolution, you know, we have poorer health because we eat a lot less variety of foods and plants and nuts and seeds and stuff than the, the hunter gatherers did. And it seems like sex was something that was lost. I can't imagine that, you know, the thousands and thousands of years of, of hunter gatherer, what she described or he described as, um, you know, the sexual climate wasn't kind of healthy and working for them. But then the agricultural revolution just, you know, put a, a whole wrench in things. And we've been dealing that for, what, three or 4,000 years um, and stuff. So just kind of my observations that maybe some of that old style living might be interesting. Thanks. Oh, Yvonne, yes. I just have to read this quote because I'm such a feminist. It says, to follow on with what Bruce was saying, clearly the biggest loser, aside from slaves perhaps, in the agricultural revolution was the human female who went from occupying a central respected role in foraging societies to becoming another possession for a man to earn and defend along with his house, his fields, and his livestock. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we are actually, yes, that's exactly what I have going next, which I loved that I, AI came up with this particular picture. You got the woman taking care of the cooking and all the men, it's all men in the background doing all the, you know, stuff, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about exactly what Yvonne just said, mentioned, um, the timeline of what happened to women during the agricultural revolution. Prior to agriculture, people shared whatever, they, whatever food they found so it wouldn't be wasted. And then 
farming created the ideas of ownership and prosperity, possessiveness, jealousy, and greed. Then the idea of possession and consequent jealousy soon extended to sexual relations and family. Again, here they're making a leap but in, in logic, but I think it's probably an apt leap. Uh, there we go. The only way for the farmer to be certain of his paternity was to force women into fidelity by public shaming, brute physical force, or legal institutions such as marriage. Women's skills as gatherers became redundant, and their role was gradually limited to taking care of the children. As women's roles became limited to raising the family, the modern ideas arose regarding female weakness, etc. So that is kind of the progression for women. So the questions are, do you agree with the author's assertion that the agricultural revolution led to directly to the downfall of egalitarianism, sorry, and sexual sharing? Why or why not? And then the family proclamation raises its head again, uh, claims that God commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. So hallelujah for the agricultural revolution. Thoughts on that? those any of that landon i i agreed with him uh because as he pointed out in a hunter-gatherer society the women uh gathered just as much you know the men might have been doing the hunting but the women were doing the uh gathering and and since everyone was sharing everything uh it was a lot easier for uh the women to uh to, to not have that they had they could survive without the man uh, whereas in the agricultural society where they, you know, they had that, they they were reliant on uh, the, the man to produce the food, whereas in the hunter-gatherers, they didn't. I know, uh, you know, having gone through a divorce, that's the hardest part is trying to split up the, how do you take care of somebody, you know, how do you divide the, uh, how do you divide the possessions so to make sure everybody's taken care of and that you both can survive Whereas if you've got everything in common anyway, you, you're just, if all you have to do is split up, that's a much easier way and no, nobody's getting hurt as much. So I can certainly see where uh, that that plays a part. And I think in our modern world, we're kind of going back to that hunter-gatherer situation where a lot of women are going back to work and providing for themselves. I've, I know a lot of people who, when they get divorced, it's not as traumatic because they both have incomes, they both have retirement plans. And so for them, it's it's not as hard as if you do follow the traditional LDS plan where the wife stays at home and all of a sudden she doesn't have a retirement or anything else. And now you've got a, a problem. So my own personal situation, I certainly see that uh, that that makes it a lot more difficult than it would be in a hunter-gatherer situation to, to do that and where you'd feel that ownership. Uh, and more difficult to separate from each other. Yes, I agree. Bruce. Yeah, the proclamation of the family, when, when I read your statement there, I've just gone like, okay, the church requires that you believe that you are broken and that you need, one, the atonement of Jesus and the church as the only conduit to Jesus and that gives them power and money 
And so this, I think, is just, you know, an organization trying to capitalize on some of the, I guess, bad things of the agricultural revolution in 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 control. I know personally, um, the church had me convinced that I was so broken, and I stepped away because I, you know, didn't want to feel so broken. I would kill myself, and um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting how the organization that has a basis in polygamy has come up with the family proclamation. It, you know, it's going like, hmm, interesting. So. Uh I agree. You know, the church and, and other churches and organizations do this. They create the the problem. They create the weakness. They create that they then have the solution for. That you have to buy into them, their their thought process and their rules to um, solve the problem that they created. Yeah. Anything else anybody wants to say about the agricultural revolution? Okay. Next up, monogamy. Um, so let me see what have I got here. First, I want to say I've, I've, I'm quoting a couple of times Esther Perel. I don't know if you've heard of Esther, Esther Perel. She's a psychotherapist known for her work on human relationships. She works with clients experiencing infidelity and examines the complexity of sustaining desire. I pulled her into the discussion because her expertise is adjacent to the hypotheses put forward in the book. She is very much open to um, the desire and the lust and love are different things and you can live with the two. And anyway, it, you'll see a couple, like I, said, I used a couple of her quotes. From the book, the idea of cheating is a social construct in nature. There is no such thing as infidelity. And I want to hear what you think about that. And Esther Perel says, monogamy is the sacred cow of, cow of the romantic ideal, for it is the marker of our specialness. When your hand or mind wanders, my importance is shattered. And of course, the family proclamation. The family is ordained of God. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. So, yeah, this, you know, again, ties in or, or is a big glaring what about polygamy? Because this does not address polygamy at all. Oh, no. Okay, so does monogamy run counter to human nature? What would that mean for individuals and societies if monogamy was not the cultural norm? And how can families provide stability to children in a non-monogamous family uh, situation? David. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so when there was a traditional polyamory in the tribes, it was one of tradition, one of culture. But I think one thing that they didn't either develop further or understand is that monogamy was akin to modernity. It was about the ownership. So it introduced the legal frameworks, um, certainly for the West, where there was a judiciary ceremony saying, you know, you will only be with this person and no other. So 
when they were starting to talk about non-monogamous relationship, it was literally a breach of a legal contract. So polygamy, um, again, could be brought into that because that was part of a legal framework. But it wasn't just simply a development of hunter-gatherer agricultural. We're talking about the whole, in, you know, the, the, the very pre-industrialization, the, the promoting um as i said of, of modernity so it's 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 so complex to answer any of these questions but I, I just thought it was interesting that they didn't really cover much on the the judicial side the the introduction of um lawful frameworks which created uh, more formally the monogamy i agree and actually to the judicial side Back with the Prop 8 issue, I was confused by the whole thing because I was, you know, just young and like, okay, whatever they say is right, whether or not I understand it, kind of a thought. Uh, and I came, I came to the conclusion that, that the legal marriage as a legal uh, contract should not be the same as a religious ceremony that those are two separate things and they should be two separate things. And then you don't have a problem. <laughs> you know, that whole thing is solved. Um, if that makes any sense, Bruce. Yeah. I just have some comments on my personal sp perspective uh, being an older gay man uh, in gay culture. Monogamy is really common because most of the gay people grew up with the same proclamation of the family, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. But open relationships are also pretty common with, sometimes there's rules, like if you're traveling for work and you're not in your zip code where you live, you're allowed to experience things with other people. Uh, open relationships also include people inviting mm -hmm. a third into their, um, Dan Savage, the, uh, sex advice columnist uses the term monogamish. So a couple who considers themselves monogamish may invite somebody else into their a physical relationship. And, um, and then there are the ones where, you know, both partners are pretty free to go seek partners elsewhere but when they come home at night they're together or at least they're together even though they may live in separate um houses and apartments because not all gay couples actually live together uh, you know that would drive me crazy i've been single for years i'm going like i'm not sharing my space with anybody but it is because the gay community was outside of the ability to get married until recently and the 60s and 70s free love movement, I think that was an effort by the young at that time, you know, rebelling against some of these um, requirements and views of what marriage and relationships were. You know, it brought it brought some problems, but it it is interesting that uh, um, it doesn't always kind of work the way that the proclamation of the family says. That's my comment. So 
I had a question and now it has gone. But let's go to the second question. Does anybody have a comment on what would it mean for the society if if monogamy was not the cultural norm, if we had polyamory or would that take, do you think that would take us back to the hunter-gatherer? Do you think that's even possible to happen in our society? I see some shaking heads. <laughs> Rebecca? Yeah, I don't know if you got my hand. I was thinking, <laughs> I always watch House Hunters, right? It's one of my favorite shows. I don't even know if it's still on, but back in the day. And I remember watching an episode where suddenly there was a throuple that was searching for a house. You know, and I remember that House Hunters had the first same-sex couple decades ago that was searching for a house. And so to me, House Hunters <laughs> is sort of a finger on the pulse of, of how things are going or how things are becoming more acceptable. Because I remember those very commercial, they showed a same-sex couple searching for a house. You know, it's a, it's a program for those that don't know. They follow a couple looking for a house and all the different choices and everything. And then they pick one. It's all amazing. I saw this one with a thruple. And I'm like, this is very interesting that they're training this. Is this is, you know, and they were looking at all the needs that this thruple would need, you know, ex bedroom or this were a common space, shared space, you know. And I thought, this is really fascinating. If this dynamic has made it onto a television program <laughs> about, you know, home decor and house hunting, you know, this probably is going to be more norm in the jury or different things that are just different from the dynamic that we're all used to. And then they're talking in the show about who was going to purchase the house and how would that, work, you know, with, with the mortgage and the write-up. And that made me think everything is going to change when this becomes more common and out in the open, because legally, like Bruce touched on, the framework around protecting and supporting people that consensually enter is something like this, it's going to be really, I think, revolutionary as far as what we see, because there will have to be those protections. Even something as fairly simple as buying a house, they were thinking about now, are we all three on it? How does this work? If one decides to sell, what are the ruple, you know, disintegrates? So I feel like, um, and I know these things are already being talked about and, and some in place in different states, but I think we're going to see a revolution just in protections and the legal side of all of this, which will reshape society completely. So all because of house hunters, <laughs> my litmus test for all of society. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so that's, I, I remember watching house hunters and seeing the, the same sex couples and thinking, yeah. Oh, interesting. And they have normalized it and helped mm -hmm. them. And I yep. love that about it. Yep. Uh, Landon. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, Melissa said property laws would change, which I think is what Rebecca said. Um, I think family law would also have to change extensively when you uh, have children. You know, it works in the village where everybody is taking care of someone that if you, you know, the, the ch children aren't affected because it's across the culture. The culture just continues to to take the children. In our society, that would not work because you know, the person who creates the children is responsible for feeding the children and raising the children. And so what would you do in that case if uh, if that's no longer the case and everybody's moving around and the children are from different fathers? But that being said, um, you kind of have to define monogamy anyway. What, what does that mean? Because I would say that uh, our society currently, if monogamy means one man, one woman, and that's it forever, 
uh, our society is not monogamous right now uh, between uh, divorces, between, uh, uh, you know, indiscretions within the marriage or people hooking up who aren't married, that monogamy is by, by no means the, the norm at this point. Uh, but certainly once you have children, the family laws would have to, there, there'd have to be some protection to watch out for the children and how, where, who, where do the children go when the parents keep switching around that that's an unstable home for the children and that could be detrimental. So there, there are certainly some things that have to be considered there uh, when we don't have that framework to support it, that the society would have to change to support that not just laws, uh, the, the whole culture would have to change, I think. Makes sense. That, and that's a whole nother, you know, issue, can of worms. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, talking about the laws and, you know, responsibilities people have when creating children and stuff. I have um, a family member I'm involved with that um, when she got married, she came to the uh, relationship with significant assets. And those assets were held in a trust. And while they're happily married, um, that trust that is my, my niece's sole property owns their home that's paid for and a lot of their resources, but they're happily married. You know, if, if, he gets everything, but we just use that to protect a pretty young, inexperienced person. So, so those type of laws, I think, would have to kind of be in place. I have another set of family members that, while I have not talked to them, many of the former Mormons in the family believe that he, he is gay and she's lesbian, and they are active believing members, and they have a number of children. And I'm just going like, okay, well, they've chosen. And I, I kind of just in my mind, I don't know because I haven't talked to them about it, that they made that conscious choice and they've got a bunch of kids now. So that's a project that they need to play out. You can't just say, oh, you know, I'm not looking, you know, for this sexually from the relationship and you get to go away. You've got you know, child support and nurturing. And, you know, if you're having a child, you need to say, okay, I'm, I'm going in to get them to being an adult and then having a decent family relationship with them. So yeah, it, it's interesting because in the hunter gatherer society, I think culture was kind of that open thing and it, it evolved to be natural. If somebody died like in an accident or hunting or sickness, and the other people in the village just kind of took over the parenting. You know, it's that whole, it takes a village kind of thing. With all of our property rights, some of that would have to really change. And if you're going into a non-traditional uh, relationship, you've got to probably take all those things into account. Uh, if you're going to stray from what our legal system and our culture does. Uh, but just... My, some of my two cents. In um, in the chat, Yvonne said, for children, serial monogamy seems so disruptive. And I have thought about that as a, you know, in relation to this. 
And I know some people who are polyamorous and, you know, obviously there's the whole parents and serial monogamy issue also. And, and I have wondered, does, is that disruptive because it's our society to what Bruce was just saying? Um, is it disruptive because it's our society to, to be one father, one mother, and that's it. And it doesn't take a village and the other, no other men will step in and it's not considered for the children. The children aren't in a society where it's okay to have multiple fathers or multiple mothers and everybody's just kind of, and, and actually was that a, a feature, a positive feature of polygamy, um, having multiple mothers. Any thoughts on that? Because I don't have thoughts on it. I just have questions. Yvonne, there we go. Unmuted, Yvonne. Okay. Um, I mean, because I brought that up because I have seen, you know, my kids' marriages and, and you know, 50%. I, have, I had five kids, so I've had two divorces in my children's families. And, and it meant... Because we're so strict, I, I think marriage, I think the idea of of a couple, you know, two people or three people or whatever, uh, legally committing to them, to each other and to having, you know, they're ready and raising children and, and that, um, I mean, they could make the rules themselves, but I think the book is arguing that this is these are conversations they need to have before they're married. Obviously, is are you a ten in sexuality, and so you need you know maybe you need maybe maybe it's the sex thing, right? I mean that shouldn't be so serious and important, but we have made it that way. And you know if you can't stay with with someone who's committed adultery, right? Or you can, but I, I think you're even looked down on. I have a sister in law, and this is her parents, but. Her, her mother cataloged 18 affairs that her father had, but she never, she never divorced him. She stayed with him. And I don't know, it's just our whole attitude towards sex. I think that not marriage itself in that, but that it could be, you know, it, it it's between two adults who are going to commit, whether they're gay, straight, trans, lesbian, you know, whatever they are, hetero, we're going to stay together. And I, and there's a, there's actually somebody in popular media that exemplifies this. And I, I'm not a follower of these people, but it just, I just heard it. And, um, but you all know who Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith are. And, you know, the big Oscar slap when somebody uh, insulted his wife, but they weren't even, they weren't living together at the time. I mean, they have different sexual proclivities apparently, but they have this loyalty. And she talked about it. She said, I know that he has my back through my entire life, you know, whatever, whoever he sleeps with, I, she didn't say that, but that's how I understood it. Whatever his sex up, we are, you know, we are committed to each other, to our marriage, to our children, and we'll have each other's back. And we'll, I mean, thoughts. <laughs> okay, Yvonne, this is the second time you've talked about the scale of being a 10 or being a one or two. And so, as this is, this is, well, I will share this. As someone who's maybe a one, two, maybe a zero even at times, um, I, when I was married and they were talking about 
um, polygamy after death and, and well, I won't go into what my ex-husband said about after we divorced, what was going to happen as far as his new wife and me. But um, he, I, I used to remember, I remember thinking, okay, well, the second wife could maybe be an eight or nine or 10 and then I would be left alone. Uh, so yeah, um, that, that part of, um, of polygamy in the afterlife, I kind of liked. Uh, maybe TMI. Bruce. Okay, well, this kind of is along that. In, in Mormon culture, we the, the path to being married is so accelerated and the knowledge of sex and the knowledge of each other is so limited when marriage is, is entered into. You know, it, I think it sets it up for disaster just from the beginning because what what do people know about sex when you know they're now they're 18 you know high school you go on a mission you come back the mission president says you need to get married within a few months and you get this 17 18 year old girl that's in high school and the, the guy's cute and they don't know about any their own sexual lives and what they want, you know, where they are on the scale of sexuality. And then they get stuck in. And then also, you know, the kind of implied no birth control and you start having kids and how never having had kids. But my understanding is that sex life changes dramatically when you have kids. And I believe the book talked about that. Um, and so and Bruce, real quick to your point, my personal experience was I didn't realize. I thought there was just something wrong with me. Yeah. That that and you know, I just needed to fix this. I didn't realize until just a year or so ago, you know, that there's nothing wrong with me. It's just who I am. And yeah. if I had known, we could have had discussions and we could have he felt, you know, it wasn't good for him to have me be a one or two. Yeah, no, and I I think the whole thing, um, you know, like I've suggested to people that I knew were getting married, go to marriage counseling and go through the gigantic list of stuff that's going to come up um, in your lives because you don't know what each of you think. And then also, I think I kind of personally think people should live together before they get married because you don't get to see a real person if they're gussying up for a date and they're presenting their best foot forward you get it when you realize the person doesn't do any dishes and doesn't pick up after themselves and you know or 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 spends money just crazy you know what are your goals together and i think if you had a a more developed sexual understanding of yourself and your relationship, then when you start to have children, you can have that discussion about, okay, what, what does this mean? And I also, you know, this is coming from an old guy who's never been in a really successful relationship that's traditional, but like saying, okay, plan out how a divorce would go with our assets and with the kids before we get into it. What do you think is reasonable, mature adult behavior? 
stuff. So I don't know. This is this is somebody who does not have experience pontificating. So I will stop. Thanks, uh, Rebecca. Yeah, I was going to address your prior comment, but now I have something to say about what Bruce said too. So I think it's interesting because not only you not know each other, but you're both. If you're both LDS, you're in this framework where somebody else is running the show, right? Your Mormon lizard brain. And that can cause real problems when one of you steps away and one of you doesn't, or you change your points of view, your behavior can change radically. I think about a friend um, that we have who, you know, he kind of stepped away from the church, did not want to pay tithing anymore, and then found out that his wife was giving tens of thousands of dollars from their shared bank account to the church because she could not do it, even though they talked about it and agreed they wouldn't. And he eventually had to leave the relationship because you can't do that with that behavior. You know, his assets were not safe. She was literally giving almost everything they had to the church to try to make up for the fact probably that he had stepped away or whatever. So you have these behaviors that kind of come out, you know, it's not just you, the cup, there's this sort of overarching organization, you know, if you're LDS that plays into the twos. And how do you talk about that when you're dating? You can't. So things really morph. But um, I was going to speak to Yvonne and Shauna had said about polygamy. So I have a very long dicey history with polygamy. I was raised in an Orthodox family, not polygamist ever, very pro-polygamy. Let me know from a very early age, I would be part of polygamy union in the next life. That's what I had to look forward to. My mom was thrilled. There would be sister wives from my dad. I mean, we had the picture of the ancestors in the striped prison clothes, the mantle. I was raised in a very pro-polygamy, celestial polygamy household. And so because of that, I was really upset as a teenager about it. I was, I was, I would about it. But at that point, not married yet. I'm just thinking of the jealousy and the sex aspect, right? I didn't know anything about those things, but that's all I could see from my limited view, 15, 16, really upset that even if I do someday get married, I have to share that person, you know, very upset. Then you get older, you do get married, you go on, you have kids. And I remember that my view sort of shifted on me and the series Big Love came out, which was um, based on the Apostolic United Brethren, which is a branch, a polygamous branch that is here everywhere in time, you wouldn't know it because they look just like everybody else. They don't have the poofy hair and they don't have the past dresses. And big love, I watched that. I was like, no, that's very interesting because look at all the share, you know, community with the kids. The kids do have, you know, different parents that can support them. They do have different moms. One mom was working, one home for the, you know, it was just this very symbiotic relationship portrayed in big love. I started to think, okay, that is really Interesting. I can see the benefit of that. <laughs> Honestly, I, I shared, you know, and, and I raised my kids away from any family. No help from parents on each side. I was completely alone. You know, just my nuclear family, I had no help. So I started to be attracted kind of to the benefit of that. And then we have a friend, Phillips. You guys may have seen us interview her. She was raised in the AUB and we've interviewed her several times. And she's talked about her five mothers and, you know, her 30-something siblings, and just what a great experience it was. You know, I don't think they have the darker side that perhaps the FLDS does. I think they're more a main street group that has just chosen to live in this polygamous scenario. And I was always amazed at the pushback that we get in the comments on those episodes 
that we were glorifying polygamy. When really, we were discussing a different lifestyle that seemed to work for people. And they were very free. There were a lot of people that had chosen to come in, you know, converted. So consenting, knowing what was happening. People left at any time. It was kind of back and forth. So I don't know. I guess I'm just trying to say that my view had shifted from being devastated and upset as a teenager. Of course, I realized there is no next life and I don't have to worry about it. But to seeing certain benefits of consenting adults, you know, marrying, not underage, but consenting, you know, connecting at an age where you, you know what you're doing. I can see that it's a lifestyle that can work for people. So I don't know. Attitudes are shifting, at least for me, I think. So I don't know what anyone else thinks about that, but interesting. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. That is a whole nother, yeah, mm -hmm. tangent there. Uh, Landon, you had something. Yeah, I, I was going to, I absolutely agree with what Rebecca just said and what Yvonne said, you know, that uh, one of the big problems with the church is they, they not only do they not encourage you to explore your sexuality when you're young and can actually, you know, before you make all these commitments, but they specifically forbid you from exploring your sexuality uh, beforehand. And I think uh, that that's just devastating. You could avoid so many problems, I think, if people at least had an idea of what they were getting into and, and what the match was. You know, I, uh, I mean, when I got married, I was like, you know, I'm a 20 something year old and I'm like, always wanting it. My wife didn't. And I didn't know that till we got married. And it's like, well, what do I do now? I'm in this situation. Am I doing something wrong? I have no experience to compare it against. So you're left wondering the whole time. Am I, you know, is it me? Is it her? Is there something wrong? What, what is this? And so you start, you start guess, second guessing. And then you've got this cases where the church tells you, oh, well, you just need to marry a woman. And then you have so many of the, so many men or women who are finding out that they're same sex attracted, but they have never looked or explored or knew anything enough to to identify that now that's devastating to a marriage so um you know i'm not saying go out and do everything but you should explore what interests you and figure it out before you make that commitment because you know when you're young it's like oh marriage we just get married and everything's fine and then when you're older you start going wow, there's a lot more to this than just uh you know uh, we both believe in the church let's Let's have kids. <laughs> but if, but you can there. make it work. And, and but you can make it work if worthy. you're both. Yeah. Yep, if you're both, if you're both have a testimony, you can make anything work. You know. Exactly. And, yeah. And and that that works for a while, but uh, definitely, it, I'm amazed since I've left how open I can be in conversations about this and how my mind has completely changed because I've seen some things work for some people. And it works for them, and it's like, well, maybe that would work for me. I'm, why not? Why, why, why do I close my mind to that? Because I was taught that you had to do it a certain way. So I, I think having an open mind and being willing to explore different ideas and different ways of doing things, everyone doesn't have to be the same. That's the church's motto. Every, everyone has to be exactly the same. And in reality, yes. we don't. We don't have to be the same. And when you open your eyes to that and say. If they want to do this and they're happy with it, what do I care? That's great that they're happy with it. And so I've just been more open since I've left to be able to kind of think through that and say, oh, there's options out there, you know. Exactly. Uh, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, I think it, I think a lot of this is about power dynamics. So if you, one of the things about agrarian societies, I think was raised here is the power starts getting centralized, whereas hunter gatherers are more decentralized. And as a consequence, if you're born into that society, or if you decide to join that society, all of a sudden you're subject to those power dynamics. And one of the things people don't think enough about in the church is if you're lucky enough to fall into, I estimate this is about a third of the population that where your preferences and your identity, however you define it, your experience aligns with the church, then you don't feel it. You don't, you don't feel the problem. Whereas if you come in and there's something different about how you behave relative to the church's uh, expectations, all of a sudden the power is brought upon you in a very passive aggressive way. And this is something I think secular people don't understand <laughs> or people that haven't been raised in the church because they, they will say to me, you know, you're, you're quite critical of what's going on, but all the Mormons I know are super nice. And, and even people inside the church, some of my relatives will say, well, you know, I, it's not like I'm, being forced to do anything. I'm just choosing these things. But then you look at it at another layer and they have, uh, you know, they're cisgender, heteronormative, and even in some cases, the wife is happy. She's, she's, uh, she's voluntarily, to some extent, happy with the situation. Like maybe she likes to make the food. Maybe she likes to have the role in the home. But that's a very small percentage of the larger group. And then everybody else that doesn't fall into that box are subjected to these power dynamics. And then if, you know, like you're, you guys were saying, when you come back from your mission, it's like have kids and and magnify your calling and build your career. You don't even have time to th think about it. And so then everybody slides into that dynamic and they're heavily manipulated because if you break up against the constraint or uh, beat up against the constraint, you're gonna have a leader or what's even worse than leaders are relatives, like family. It's like parents and siblings and cousins coming and saying, you, know, you guys aren't really following what, what's going on. And, and, and the last point I'll make, I find it interesting in the church, they talk so much. I, I estimate it's like 95% of all talks in sacrament meeting and a general conference are who, uh, how you find knowledge, like who you talk to, what you read. But very little is ever spoken explicitly what that knowledge is. I mean, I, I tried this with the a nephew of mine is going on a mission. I said, look, just tell me the four things that you actually are going to be teaching on a mission. And all he could say is modern revelation. I said, no, that's the how. It's like, I want to know the what. And what's interesting about that is since it gives a, it gives a senior leadership deniability because they don't explicitly say, don't use birth control. I know a few people have in the past, but but then the the society creates the expectation. Yes, everybody doesn't use birth control. Or then, you know, the, 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 I've never heard them say from the pulpit, wait to have children until you're stable in your relationship or you have enough money. Uh, but privately, some people will say that, but I've even had uh, situations where other family members are putting pressure on newly married uh, uh, family members or relatives. You, know, you guys need to start having children now. You know, don't worry about going into debt. Don't worry that you haven't finished your, your education. And since the, the, official communication is rarely specific, then people can say externally, look, it's not we're forcing people to do this. But anyway, I think it's just often about power dynamics. Good point there, Jeffrey. Thank you. It is, it's a lot of it's about power, right? David. I was going to say, just before I come to my point about that one about um, birth control, I know when 
you know, we came off your mission, your mission presence, say, you know, you are a danger to the church unless you get yourself married. But the handbook at the time, you know, it literally said, for those who practice birth control will reap disappointment by and by. And then when we thought there was a great modernization and President Hinckley changed the wording, actually, it didn't change the, the context of it, of what was actually there. It just said it's a personal, intimate decision between a husband and wife and the Lord. So they didn't actually renege on, on what was being said. But when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the, the Amish. And they're certainly, you know, in a very strict framework but, you know, the youth, when they get to late teens and they consider whether they're going to go to the way of the world or to the way of the Amish more formally, they go on what we call rum springer. I don't know if you heard about that. You know, it's the only way I can explain it is um, spring break for uh, uh, co-eds and, uh, and students going away. You know, it's you then let out whatever tensions you have, whatever they may be, and then you come back and put all that behind you. But of course, that could never happen in in in, in a Mormon type um, environment. I mean, even even within the Amish, you would be able to go into the same bed, but separated by a board, so you could talk during the night. In Mormonism, you're not even meant to be under the same roof till you're at least twenty one with three chaperones. You let alone go close to someone's bedroom. So you have this fragility that. The moment you do that, you're suddenly triggering. Oh, my goodness, I've done something wrong. Then your world comes crashing down. And it's like, well, actually, it's come crashing down now. So it doesn't matter. We've gone too far. So there's there's not a maturity about relationships. There's not a maturity about sexuality. In fact, the church avoids talking about it. So even approaching or exploring, you become either feeling condemned or you're taught by your, your priesthood leaders that it's inappropriate behavior and to answer your question what do you learn you know i know uh, as as jeff foxworthy said that when i come in the house and my wife's upset i don't need to ask i know it's going to be my fault and the only way you can deal with it is saying can i go to my room and think about it that's what i've learned after 31 years and it kind of still works <laughs> i like that uh bruce well i thought one of the interesting chapters was talking about birth control and how some of our artificial birth control affects how how and who women are attracted to and when they go on and off birth control it it can change things and again it's it's knowledge transparency um you know to make better choices. Um, I, I don't know how that works. I've never been been worried about birth control and and stuff. But yeah, it having a broad understanding of how the world works, how biology works, how relationships work, and then kind of figuring out how to make it work best for you. I mean, that's that whole exploring the world beyond Mormonism, because it's a big puzzle. And I'm not sure there's just any easy answers, but I think with more knowledge and understanding and and openness and transparency with the people you're doing this with, you might get a better outcome. Yes, that's true. Um, 
So I'm looking at this. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Bruce. This is not. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, looking at uh, a comment from Jeffrey in the chat. He says, also the mythology that your family was established in the pre-mortal existence is used to imply that birth control interferes with relationships before this life. It um, reminded me that this week I watched Mormon movie reviews. Devos? Devos? Is that his name? Um, he did um, Saturday's Warrior. And, you know, there's the family in heaven. And then the, when when... Pam dies, she meets up with the, you know, and anyway, if you know the show, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I will move on since I advanced my slide that uh, the other thought that I found interesting in the book, uh, so wanted to kind of discuss is the idea that true love means lifelong, the lifelong monogamy is a, that idea is a source of despair and disease. And from the summary, it says, when you truly love someone, you won't ever need anyone else in your life. And sex with that one special person will always be great, right? Well, it's a nice story, but it's certainly not a true one. Just because we're able to feel deep love for a person for the rest of our lives does not necessarily mean that we'll continue to desire that person. In fact, because our ancestors evolved to have sex with anyone they liked, we're biologically programmed to seek out sex with many different partners. The disparity between the messages of romantic comedies and the actual experience of being in a monogamous relationship can lead to profound unhappiness. By considering monogamy as our natural state, we often confuse love and sex. We tend to misinterpret a lack of lust for our partner as a lack of love. Similarly, we often confuse sexual excitement we get from an extramarital fling with feelings of true love for that person. But the dangers of monogamy don't stop there. It's also seriously bad for your health. As studies have shown, men in long-term monogamous relationships suffer a big drop in their testosterone levels. The drop happens because the male sex drive and the hormone testosterone are interrelated. So if one dwindles, the other will too. And it can lead to potentially fatal diseases. Low to testosterone levels in men are associated with depression, heart disease, and cancer. And this is another one of those. Does this really make sense? Did, did they leap? Uh, did they leap their logic and jump? You know, a few a few sharks to get to that that conclusion, uh, which is a question I will have. But right now we've got the quote from the book: the concept of sexuality. Sexual exclusivity often leads to deceit and betrayal, whereas openness fosters honesty and transparency. And we have Esther Perel saying there is more of a hint, more than a hint of arrogance in the assumption that we can make our relationships permanent, which I actually find kind of sad, um, though maybe true. And then from the proclamation, we warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individual com individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. So do you believe lack of lust for a partner equals lack of love. What are your thoughts on the theory that monogamous relationships are hazardous to male health 
and our despair and disease, the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets, any other calamities you can think of that this lack of monogamy will create. Yeah. Uh disease is the biggest one i think uh it, currently you know that you could pass something on or catch something and then that would pass that's on true to your to someone that you really care about and really do love so sometimes you know lust seems you know oh, oh wow you know do that real but it could have long lasting consequences for both you and the person that you really love so so, but the authors are saying that monogamy can lead to death and or disease. Oh yeah, yeah. They both yeah because obviously then you're not going to say anything if you're in this monogamous relationship. That's where it can be dangerous. Whereas if you're open, you can take the steps at least to do that. But it's certainly to me that's one of the big issues with you know uh, sleeping around is that you would well, yeah. That you would catch something and and uh, and and do something to somebody that you really love, and and that would would be very hard to live with. Yeah, that's true, Bruce. Well, in the gay community, in the part of the gay community that's not monogamous, and there's a, a number of dating apps. On your profile, it is extremely common to put the date you were last tested for HIV and other STDs. Mm. It's not a real current date, you know, that's it brings up the discussion. Also, it it comes up with COVID shots. And you often they'll you'll put COVID and then the little emoji of a a hypodermic needle and you put down how many COVID vaccinations you've had. And then also in, in these dating apps, you also put flu and, you know, when your flu shot was, and in the gay community, monkeypox a couple of years ago was going around. And you also put whether you had had the two doses of monkeypox. And so the discussion of what you're going to do often is limited by the discussion of, you know, your status when you were tested last. And there are many things you can do without risking a lot of disease. And you can agree to do the limited stuff as you're starting to disclose to each other more stuff. But, you know, when you're, you're doing it on the sly, and not in a more open situation. Yeah, I think you do take risks, but I think, you know, in, in the gay community, a lot of people have evolved into saying, okay, let's have this discussion and let's be transparent about what's going on. And I think, you know, if you're going to be sleeping around, that's a good concept. And But that's also should be taught for high schoolers and and stuff on where and how to get tested for STDs, where and how to get birth control, all these things that are so forbidden in our culture, but that honesty and transparency, well, and that's my basic, how I boil down the problems with Mormonism is they have a problem with honesty and they have a problem with 
transparency and everything can be under those two big umbrellas. But that was just my comment. Thanks, Bruce. Rebecca? Yeah, I think uh, my thoughts on the theory that monogamous relationships are hazardous to male health, I don't know that I believe that because I read studies where they say that being in a committed partnership increases longevity and is actually good for health. So I'd be on the fence on that. However, I will say that I believe that a lot of the practices of the church or <laughs> how they interfere in natural sexual behaviors, especially masturbation, is very hazardous, especially to male health. I've always wanted to, I don't know, go on a soapbox tour and talk about state cancer and masturbation. I'm not kidding. I <laughs> there's there's reese there, there's data there, you know, natural healthy sexual practices and you know from a religious standpoint stopping that or telling you there's something wrong with that it really can affect male health it absolutely can of course i'm probably the wrong person to get on a soapbox and talk about that so i probably need a guy landon do you want to do that maybe you do that but but seriously i have uh anecdotally at least family members extended family who you know all in to mormonism do not do not engage in any, but I would consider a healthy sexual practice and have had lifetime issues with, you know, prostate cancer and things like that. So, and, and that's anecdotal, but I, I have read a lot about that. So again, why is a religion interfering, you know, in things that should be between you, yourself, your partner, your physician? I mean, stay out. It literally can be life and death in some cases. Yeah, thank you. The um, sorry, there's a Super Bowl issue going on. Uh oh, uh -oh. in the chat. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> Are they arguing? That, that <laughs> I that actually started. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to puppies. I would um, never. Yeah, a lot less heavy than this, I right? <laughs> I started it. Um, no, this is great. Oh gosh. Okay, so um, I actually I didn't. Well, I didn't intend for this, but it's showing up on my notes. And so there's a reason it's still in my notes. Um, this is from a, a summary of the book. Uh, it talks about, let's see, the, I'll just read the whole thing. The breakdown, how long should I be going? Um, we'll probably end right around whenever you want to, but we kind of shoot for like one. And then we usually have our okay. mix and mingle too. We're not going to stay on just because everybody has Super Bowl stuff yeah. to do. But whenever you feel that you're finished, I mean, we'll okay. probably talk for hours about this well, topic, you know, and, you know especially we're, we're the Mormonism be, element of it. So yeah, but probably yeah, around 10 to, we have to, so because yeah. a lot okay. of people are going to be leaving, I think. For, yeah. Yep. And if anybody yeah. does happen to want to stay and talk for a few minutes, I will be around. Oh. Oh, good. Okay, Just, let's you know, say that then. Yeah, anyone that has to go, go. Not, but, not a full okay. hour, but if anybody yeah. wants to just talk for a few minutes yeah no that's great bruce thank you and then i'll say to the people that are joining oh, us for sorry. the full time first time we do typically that. do at the end of the second hour we just stay on for another half an hour 40 minutes sometimes an hour just talking and getting to know each other but just because of the circumstance today some of this won't but looks like bruce is still going to stick around so if anyone wants to stay on the meeting you can still continue the discussion <laughs> there's so much here so yeah continue shauna that's great maybe end about 10 till 5 till and and we'll do the rest of our announcements so this is so good oh my gosh <laughs> okay so what uh, is there more interest in discussing 
sex monog open discussion of sex monogamy and infidelity could benefit individuals in society or do we want to talk about criticism the book. I'd love to hear the criticism now that we're getting okay. to the end because I think you okay. read this and you're like, this sounds so logical. Yes, I can see it clearly. But as we know, this book is a little bit older and there has been some new research. So we would be remiss yes. if we didn't go in that. So yeah, I am very excited to hear you talk about, you know, as we should weigh all sides, right? Critical thinkers. Let's talk okay. about criticisms. So I have two uh, quotes of criticisms about the book and then I have my own Thoughts, which I already shared that there seem to be some leaps of logic. Sorry, my mouse. <laughs> if I bang it, it starts working. And I always do that too. No. I always think thinking will help. Okay. It doesn't. <laughs> Not sure why. Oh, I know what's going on. Okay. Um, I have, sorry, I have two screens going. No. I can We're see done. your bonobos. Yeah, there's. I know, I know. I want to get into the bonobos. Oh, so bad. bonobos. Um, yeah, that's something else. Okay, so now I can read. I'm just doing it with the the keyboard. Um, there is no standard narrative of human sexual re revolution. That's a criticism. There are a wide array of people who have made inferences about the evolutionary basis of sexuality, but their narratives aren't consistent and new papers and, and ideas consistently jostle or replace old ones. The authors don't cite anyone else who claims a standard narrative because this is, uh, by the way, this is not my criticism. This is from a, a, a blogger named Jake Silliger. Silliger? Um, because to my knowledge, no one has, okay. The authors don't cite anyone else who claims a standard narrative because to my knowledge, no one has. And the standard narrative they cobbled together is just that cobbled together from a variety of sources with a variety of views. And then another, uh, blogger named Justin LeMiller, LeMiller, L-E-H-M-I-L-L-E-R. The authors attempt to discredit what they term the standard narrative of human sexual evolution, at least partly on the basis that certain re research practices in psychology and anthropology have yielded inconclusive results. In some cases, they simply reinterpret findings that have traditionally been taken as support for the standard narrative without offering new or more compelling evidence for their alternative view. So they, the large amount number of the, um, controversies i get rid of this seem to be that with the standard narrative i also added that the authors reinterpret findings without offering new or more compelling evidence for their alternative view and make huge leaps of logic to come to a conclusion which one of the leaks of logic i i pointed out earlier and then we're going to get into the bonobos because i had a real issue with the bonobos um they're they're saying that human and bonobos dna differs by only 1.6 percent this is one of those leaps of logic i thought they had and um and i did not look this up when i was talking to my daughter about this she's uh she's a psych psychiatric nurse practitioner she's so she's she does a lot of research and stuff she's like well look up other animals and see how much our dna differs with other animals because all they do is say that but 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 are do we differ from you know tigers by 2.1 percent you know that's the question is what what how there's no there's no scale to judge this 1.6 percent by uh and then they're saying that we can look because of that we can look to bonobos to understand human nature 
and then, so let's look to bonobos. They have active and promiscuous sex lives, live in small, tight-knit communities, and females have a high status. And bonobos' lifestyle is very similar to early hunter-gatherer lifestyles, which actually we don't, we, we don't know exactly what hunter-gatherer lifestyles were like. But you are surmising and, and trying to figure it out. But there, since it was prehistoric, uh, we don't have any history data on that. Um, oh, and there you go. How do we know that? In which sex was shared among all members of the community. And then they come to, therefore, we can say that traditional and contemporary belief that humans are best suited for mon monogamous lifestyles is myopic, which I threw that word in there specifically for a very specific reason. But, you know, that it's not valid, that, that, that we shouldn't be monogamous because of all of this data from bonobos. Um, I, they, to, in my opinion, they spent a, an overly excessive amount of time talking about bonobos monkeys. <laughs> it's not my favorite part of the Interesting. Um, <laughs> but you're right. Might not be relevant. Huh? <laughs> and I just, I, I personally didn't find it interesting, which is why I kind of threw, didn't talk about Do not about make this. any AI for the bonobos. Come on. Your AI is so Oh, good. no, no, no. I that would have been frightening. I, picture of the bonobos that I was going to throw in and I'm like no let's leave that out <laughs> uh, and the whole discussion about testicle sizes um how do criticisms regarding inconsistent narratives lack of citations and misinterpretation of data impact the veracity of the book's hypotheses did you notice any other ways that the authors sought to reinterpret data to support their hypotheses any 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 criticisms you got or thoughts about I, I, I didn't think the bonobos was uh, a big jump in fact I think uh comparing to the nearest uh genetic relative it, because we know as you evolve that only certain things change so to me that was a, a realistic comparison it doesn't prove anything but it it certainly gives you you know if your closest relative did it that way it it's more than likely what's genetically ingrained in you. Um, I, I thought that was realistic. I see Jeff has his hand up and he's more scientific than me by far. So I'd be interested in his take on that. But I, I didn't think that was that big of a stretch or jump. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I just, I, my thoughts are, you know, I, I, I am open to hearing what other people have to say, especially somebody who's more scientific. Um, but first, Bruce, Bruce one. Okay, so basically, as I was walking yesterday, um, I was listening to the part where uh, is your scrotum half empty or half full? That will stay with me for the, <laughs> the rest of my life. But yeah, I think a lot of research and stuff can be criticized. But when I look at the other dominant narrative put forth by, say, the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church and relying on their honesty and their delving into how things actually work. I'm going like, okay, I've got to look someplace else besides that. And I think this book, you know, at least pointed us towards some other ways to look at things because the predominant... Um, I guess Judeo-Christian Christian narrative doesn't seem to be working 
in my view. So that was just my comment. I, I agree with you on it's not working. Um, Jeffrey, and then I will close it out with some final thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of issues with the the strength of the conclusions in this kind of a book. I mean, the first the first problem is typically this research is not system. It's not system wide. And this is something that is different across the different sciences. So if you look at physics, for example, you can typically do system-wide analyses if you're looking at cosmology or if you're trying to understand certain aspects of uh, particle physics. But even there, they don't really have, you know, string theory doesn't really work, so there are problems. But when you get into this biology going into social science, it's just replete with, with this myopic view. What, what ends up happening is people focus on one part of the analysis and then they miss the bigger uh, system-wide picture. And then, and that leads to the second problem that I have, and, and that is, I, I'm just not sure they're picking up all the confounders. I mean, Landon in, in implied one of those before, you know, so you, you see a piece of data that says monogamous men are less healthy. And so, and then if I'm using inductive reasoning, which is probably the problem here, I could have multiple uh, compelling explanations. So one explanation might be that something about being, being monogamous makes people, you know, I, I think you might have mentioned, or maybe it's in the book, you know, you drop your testosterone or your libido drops. Although I think that that, that, that analysis is pretty weak. Uh, but the more likely explanation is that they, they are going out and sleeping with prostitutes or having affairs and then bringing illness back into the, the marriage and themselves. But the issue is I have the same piece of, of I have the same set of data, but I've got multiple explanations. And I don't like it when people do inductive reasoning and then they make these strong statements in terms of how they generalize application, because often that's wrong. You know, often there's just some kind of a confounder underneath that's causing, uh, you know, it, it's causing the outcome that's just not being picked up. And, and then the other problem is just the classic, I'm sure you've all heard, correlation does not imply causation. So so just because I see some correlation in data doesn't mean that I can then build this story around underlying causation. I think that that these authors get a little carried away with that piece. So I mean, I just you know the uh, I take what's called a Bayesian view. You just you you pull in this information and you update your priors, and then you go somewhere else and you pull in this information. And you know one one of the things, just my last point, because I have this debate semi-regularly with some of my believing family members, you know, they will say things like, you know, the scientific understanding of X, whatever it is, like sex or families or uh, the way we structure society, it's been disproven. So the things we understood in the 70s or in the early 20th century, we don't understand. And I don't know why you think that your faith in science is better than my faith in the religion. And my response to that is the adaptation. It's like the flexibility and adaptation. So if somebody brings to me new data, a new analysis, they sort out the confounders, I'm gonna change my mind. I mean, you know, maybe I've got, I've got cognitive biases. It takes me a while to change my mind or it's hard to see through the, the, those, the motivated reasoning we all have. Whereas I find the religious systems are just super brittle and very rigid. You know, so, you, you know, you're still having debates about things that were written down like thousands of years ago, and you're not adapting 
to the new data. And the only adaptation that occurs is just mental gymnastics to kind of twist your head around interpreting some piece of advice that now makes zero sense in light of the current information. And it's not about throwing previous scientists under the bus. They did the best they could with the information they had. We can just adapt to that now. And I think that's an important point. And I like the fact that you're questioning this book because I, I do find some people who leave high demand religions, it's like all of a sudden, anything that XYZ scientist says, that becomes their new line of thinking. Yeah, and, and, and this is something else that, that, that TBMs don't understand in the, in the ex-Mormon, post-Mormon community. There are no prophets. There's nobody like, like I don't really, there's nobody that I'm going to 100% agree with on anything. And that's a point that, that I think is often missed in, in, you know, call it mixed faith discussions. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. And that reminded me that um, another criticism that I did not include is that there's no peer review. That stuff like this should be peer reviewed and it was not peer reviewed. So, um, you know, they're just throwing out their, their thoughts and saying this is the way it is. Um, okay, so, and then, but uh, I wanna conclude with why this matters. Uh, this is so quickly from Blinkist again. Both the, the key message in this book is both men and women are promiscuous by nature and evolved to have sex with many different partners. The monogamous mating system based on the nuclear family structure is culturally constructed and doesn't fit with our natural tendencies. Yet false beliefs about sexual fidelity and true love prevail and lead to frustration and even sometimes disease. And then um, from his TED talk, at the end of the TED talk, Christopher Ryan says why this matters. That's what why this matters comes from. He said, this matters because our involvement in sexuality is in direct conflict with aspects of the modern world. The contradictions between what we're told we should feel and what we actually do feel generates a huge amount of unnecessary suffering. My, Christopher Ryan's, hope is that a more accurate, updated understanding of human sexuality will lead us to have greater tolerance for ourselves, for each other, and a greater respect for unconventional relationship configurations like same-sex marriage or polyamorous unions, and that will finally put to rest the idea that men have some innate instinctive right to monitor and control women's sexual behavior. So I thought that was a really good um, why it matters. That's all I got. Uh, that's excellent, Shauna. Thank you so much. And thank you for being brave enough to take on this book because it was, I, it was like the last book anybody chose. <laughs> oh my gosh, I volunteered for it before I knew what the book was. Oh, I got to stop sharing my screen. Hold on. No, you, you, that was excellent. No, I love it. Thank you so much. And again, this will be on our YouTube channel for the Good Book Club. And I feel like a lot of people will watch it because it, it brings up so many questions, which, which is what we're supposed to do. So this is great. Um, let's go to our final slides really quickly and we'll get through those. So our next book coming up in March, ooh, I've been looking forward to this one, is Devil's Gate. And Landon is going to lead this, which is always a treat. And so we're going to let him talk about Devil's Gate for much. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So our next book is Devil's Gate, Brigham Young and the Great Mormon Handcart Tragedy. Uh, I think most of us that were raised in the church, you know, the Willie Martin Handcart uh, story. 
and the devastation that happened there. Uh, but for those of us that were raised in the church, it's a story of uh, faith. It's a story of uh, people who uh, don't give up on God, and it's promoted as a faith-inspiring story. Uh, Devil's Gate uh, takes a more nuanced look at this to see what role did Brigham Young have in the tragedy? Uh, could it have been avoided? And what's the responsibility, you know, what responsibility did the church or the leaders have for uh, this uh, horrific uh, incident where I think it was 220 people lost their lives uh, because they crossed the uh, prairies too late in the season with only handcarts. Uh, we recently went to Devil's Gate uh, back in October. It was uh, quite an amazing experience. There, I learned a lot of things I hadn't learned but that I didn't know before. I didn't know there were wagon trains that were also out on the plains with them uh, at the same time and how uh, they actually were near, a, a, there's a little fort that they were near uh, when the snow started falling and when they, uh, one, at least one group was was next to this uh, fort. It was quite uh, uh, amazing when you went to Devil's Gate to see uh, how it how it uh, impacted the, the result. Uh, but we wanted to try to do a a tour of this uh, probably later in the season because it's Wyoming and it's cold <laughs> when the wind blows. We were there in October and we were freezing to death uh, even then. So uh, very it very well brought home how cold it could be and how miserable with that wind blowing it, it would be to be stuck out there. Um, so the one thing we learned as we went, there's actually several sites. And as we went to the different sites, uh, we kept getting told over and over and over again that Brigham Young didn't make the decision and that uh, the, that Brigham Young had nothing to do with this, that it, the people themselves decided to go. No. And they said it so much, it was almost, uh, thou dost protest too much. <laughs> we started going, how come every time we go, they keep telling us Brigham Young didn't have anything to do with this decision? And I think as we read Devil's Gate, we might be able to see that uh, Brigham Young definitely uh, played a part in this and his... Uh, wanting to get uh, people over as cheaply as possible uh, probably contributed to the disaster. So uh, Devil's Gate, get the book, read it, and next month we'll have a discussion. Yep, this is going to be really good. And Landon's right, like unsolicited. We went to probably three or four different sites and had um, personal tours from people because there weren't a lot of people there in October. So we had one gentleman that would drive us around in his truck and show every single one of them. Oh, and of course, Brigham Young knew nothing. They just volunteered it, which tells me that's on their little script that they need, need you know, are encouraged to read to everybody. But yeah, fascinating. There's so much more to it. Then we were taught in Sunday school that wagon train or that handcart company is the one that is used in every conference talk, right? Held up as martyrs. And there's such a backstory on why they actually left late. And that was to get Brigham Young's uh, still and some of his other goods to Salt Lake. Oh my gosh, this book is probably one of those ones where we're going to read and throw it against the wall several times because literally nothing is as we were taught. Nothing. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's mind blowing. Anyway, that'll be March 10th. And like Landon said, we will try to get together maybe a little trip if some people want to go out there and, you know, just kind of a weekend or a three-day weekend or something like that and around because it's absolutely fascinating. Um, let's go to our last couple slides really quickly. 
Um, wanted to make sure everybody knows that the Good Book Club is in podcast format. You can search the Good Book Club podcast on any platform that you find your podcast on, and you can just listen at the gym if you miss some of the meetings. And there's a lot going back. Also, I described before, we are on YouTube. You can search the Good Book Club for Post-Mormons and catch up um, by watching with the slides and everything, um, all of our wonderful presentations from the past. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, also on the on the radar is um, the Good Media Club, which we curate. It's kind of just a Facebook page where we throw things that we find, series, movies, documentaries that have to do with Mormonism or cults, ironically. <laughs> so if you're curious about, is there anything good coming out, anything I want to watch, you can go over there on Facebook and just um, scroll around and see what else is there. Also, of course, Landon and I have finished podcast and that airs every Wednesday, sorry, every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Time um, as a premiere, meaning there's a live chat where a lot of us are on there talking and chatting and have a really good time. It's kind of a party. Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. Mountain Time and then just another episode every Friday at 4 p.m. And a lot of topics we find inspiration for from book club, like Landon and I are just texting on the side right now going, got to cover this sex on stuff on Mormonish. I mean, it is. It's really interesting. We get a lot of our ideas from a lot of you and, and from the book club, which is wonderful. So, all right. Um, if you are for the first time and you'd like to connect or be a member of the book club, you can send an email to me at, at the good club at mail.com. And I'll always answer. Um, you can also just find us on Facebook. That's our little there with the row of books. We're also on Instagram. You can just connect with us and then you'll get links and notifications about the next book. And we chat kind of, um, you know, in the month queen meetings, kind of talking about the book. So it's it's a really wonderful group. I just appreciate everybody so much. Everybody's so dang smart. I just love our discussions and so much insight and life experience. And and then you also have the opportunity if you want to lead a book discussion like what Shauna did, which again, I have to say, so well done on this topic that, you know, is a little, can be a little, and your AI was incredible, way better than mine. Oh my gosh, we need to chat. You, you did a great job. Those are legendary <laughs> oh pictures. So very, very good. So I think we have one slide. Um, yes, if you email me, it sometimes goes to spam. Uh, so make sure that you check your um, your spam folder if you have emailed me at the, the good book club at mail.com. And so we will end here.